said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Christopher Ryan. Today I'm joined by Kate Bullock. Did I pronounce that yes. right? Bullock. Who is a uh, contributing editor, contributing writer, Contrib some sort of big shot at the Atlantic. Uh, big shot, that's all you need. Big to shot, know. contributing yeah. big shot at the Atlantic magazine. And we're going to talk about her deepest, darkest sexual fantasy because just like the rest of us, she's going to die one day. <laughs> just before I turned this on, we were talking about fantasies and Kate said, I've never told anyone my deepest fantasy and I'm not going to start today. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to get her in the carpe diem mood of this thing, you know? So, Kate, let's just start with that. What do you say? Um, wait, do we, do we, do we, does this get edited out or does it just like go all from start to finish? Uh, depends how much we fuck up. Okay. You know, if we, if we can go start to finish, that makes Dustin's okay. life a little easier. Okay. Dustin is my version of Dan Savage's uh, tech savvy high-risk youth or at-risk tech savvy at-risk youth that's what he calls his like production team <laughs> I've got Dustin who is also tech savvy I don't know Dustin if you're high-risk at-risk <laughs> we'll talk about that someday but let's talk about Kate are you tech savvy uh, in the standard ways um, mm -hmm. are you at-risk <laughs> I'm certainly at risk for a lot of things, but uh, not in the traditional sense. So what are you at risk for? Um, or of? I'm not sure what the preposition is. There. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been thinking about it, so I don't have a ready answer. Yeah. Well, that's how you can tell I'm a great interviewer. When I get you with those questions you don't have a ready answer for, and then we have awkward silence. That's great for radio. Dustin, edit that out. <laughs> Just kidding. You can say whatever you want. This is a very freewheeling thing. I mean, I talk to... Not everyone I talk to is a big deal at The Atlantic. Some people are. I'm going to interview my 10-year-old uh, cousin's kid. I mean, my cousin's 10-year-old kid, uh -huh. I guess is how you say it. He's one of these amazing 10-year-olds who knows he's 10 years old and sort of... You know what I mean? Like a, a kid who's got perspective of life yeah. and sort of sees himself in the whole thing yeah you know he's got blank spots like yeah. we all do but far fewer than most 10 year olds uh -huh. so i'm really looking forward oh, that's to great. that i can't wait to hear that yeah like what's it like to be 10 yeah you know? he's the kind of kid you can actually ask that question yeah to. Yeah. yeah that's great yeah so we should apologize for the strange noises the neighbors upstairs are moving some stuff around or doing some work we're in manhattan so you're going to get that that ambient uh, urban feel, that gritty New York Soho vibe. Right. Right. So how did you get to be you? What's it like to be 10, Kate? Come on. Um, or 20. How old are you? 20. I'm 40. 40? I'm trying to remember what... You're not 40. I'm, yeah, I just turned 40 in July. By the way, you can see Kate on the cover of The Atlantic. Of What issue was that? Uh, it was last November. So November 2011. Look it up. A year ago, almost, kind wow. of. Um, ten. I remember being ten a lot, yeah. I also really remember being thirteen, and I was just thinking about it the other day, and I was thinking about it in terms of sex, conveniently, mm -hmm. um, about how I was very aware, I was a very, um, I was a very rule-abiding 
girl mm. and when and I really liked that I was really comfortable with it and I was really comfortable being a kid and being 13 and I never wanted to get older and I remember very clearly in eighth grade feeling very sad that it was all about to come to an end that we were about to go to high school and become 14 and everyone would start having sex and drinking and doing drugs and then this was the last gasp of our childhood innocence and wow. I was really sad to think that it was coming to a close wow you felt the innocence slipping away. Yeah, yeah. You went to high school at 14? Yeah, we all do. Don't we? Jeez. Yeah, yeah that's freshman really? year. Yeah, ninth grade. Yeah. Yeah. I, must have, I must have been left back a year. I don't remember. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I was 15 or maybe even 16. Yeah, I, right, I don't know. Right. It was so long ago. You know, we did things differently then. Right. Barefoot in the snow and all that. Yeah. So you were 13 and you were thinking, oh, this is the end of innocence. Yeah. Here it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So did you go to high school, start breaking rules, having sex, drinking beer? No, I continued on being very rule-abiding. Hmm. And my parents thought... I was very close to my parents, and I thought that they were very sensible people. And I was very aware that I was a teenager and didn't have as much sense as they did. And I liked the way they parented me. And I felt like we were all three of us joined in the like the effort or the endeavor of parenting me that we all were like <laughs> hoping for the best outcome possible really? <laughs> yeah, makes so sense. they were really convincing that they thought teenagers weren't ready for sex emotionally and right. that it would be too disruptive and so i thought okay then i'm gonna wait i'm not gonna have sex yet i'm too uh, i'm too young i'm a teenager and and so i developed this uh, reputation it was a small high school and, and where was it in Massachusetts a, a small town on the coast of Massachusetts mm. and so everyone was having sex and I was kind of the like famous virgin really and, um, and I had a boyfriend for most of high school and I didn't have sex with him we had we fooled around but we didn't have penetrative sex as well when I say sex that's what I'm talking about mm. and um, like a Bill Clinton sort of right we had a lot of, of sex. Clintonian sex but right um, right uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and then uh, which has yeah. nothing to do with the clitoris it's Clinton <laughs> Clinton everybody uh, <laughs> yes that's how it worked that's uh, how so, it worked. so I could I yeah. it was and it created this very safe environment for me because once I was broke up with that long-term boyfriend yeah. and started fooling around with the boys they knew that I wasn't going to have penetrative sex because right. I was famously a virgin yeah. so I never went I, I never felt uh, pressured into situations that I wasn't ready for well, because it was, like, the deal was clear as we went into it um, and I was thinking about that recently in term where was it might have been something I was reading that you had written about oh god what is it it's it's um something along the idea of you know how we hear this talk these days with social media that the human brain can only handle like 150 is the Dunbar's number. number Dunbar's number yeah. so it was in your book I was reading yeah. about that and I was thinking about um, groups and social groups and sexual norms and hookup culture right. and so what the difference between you know so to grow up in a small town live your whole life there you know 120 kids in my high school class so not Ooh. exceedingly small but like small that's pretty small so it meant uh, it was really you just you'd known everyone your whole life so right. how, like fooling around and sex wasn't a, really, a very threatening mm. kind of scenario but how it must be different when you're in big high schools and then how does that when we talk about hookup culture in colleges we're acting like it's all we're not 
they're all different group numbers. Right. You're, so. you're right. And that completely changes the experience of, of all these different interactions. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's one thing that people often misunderstand when I'm giving presentations or people, you know, talk to me about sex at dawn. They think... You know, even though we make a big point of saying there's no prescription here, that we're not telling anyone what to do, but everybody sort of assumes that what we're saying is, hey, you know, um, promiscuity comes naturally. You should just, like, screw everybody you meet to mm -hmm. feel like screwing. But, you know, we make a really big point in the book of, of talking about how things behaviors are so different in different social contexts and so yeah our ancestors evolved having these overlapping sexual relationships according to our paradigm anyway um, but that doesn't mean that they were ever having sex with strangers they were having sex with people they'd known most or all of their lives people you know whose kids they took care of and you know they they commonly took care of kids people they shared food with every night people they sat around the fire with mm -hmm. year after year after year so it's not like going down to the local bar or craigslist or you know ashley madison and you know pick someone out of the off the list and have sex an hour later it's nothing like that uh -huh. so the, the applicability of what we're trying to argue in the book is is a lot more uh, complicated than I think a lot of people yeah. uh, understand. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's also it's it's further complicated by um, when we talk about sex in American culture, we're talking about norms or not norms. It's always generalized, and yeah. we don't talk very much about the specifics of individuals and how they feel yeah. about things. But isn't that the problem with large scale yes. civilization yes. and everything? Yeah, you know, I think about that. You know, I have a friend who says, I should be allowed to drive drunk because I've been driving drunk for 25 years. I've never had an accident. I've never gotten a ticket. I've never had a problem. But if I go to a, a road stop, they're going to test my alcohol level and I'm going to get the same fines and penalties as anyone right. else. But I've demonstrated that I can do this, yeah. you know. So how come the law applies to me? Yeah, I think I mean, that's sort of a Nietzschean, Uberman sort right. of notion of, but it's true. I think there's a there's a frustration of living in large scale cultures where the laws are designed to control the lowest common denominator. So if you're not that mindless frat boy idiot, sorry to any mindless frat boy idiots who may be listening, if you're not that guy, then the laws don't really seem to apply to you. Right. You know? Right. Why can't I use drugs? I've used drugs for years and I've never had a problem. Right. Leave me alone. And then also, I mean, the way I'm thinking about it is is slightly different from that, but about when you, I mean, when you mentioned promiscuity. So I didn't start having casual sex until I was 30. And I was really, uh, in, you know, intimidated by it and confused and excited to try it mm. but I was entering into it as if um, well this is something that everybody does right. and so in my endeavor to help you know along with my parents to raise me in the most uh, enlightened way possible I need to be partaking in this kind of social so you're gonna screw a stranger for your parents is that how this <laughs> works out you know and it's, I don't think I I've did ever it for you, a stranger <laughs> but uh uh, and it took me a long time to figure out what I was personally comfortable with because mm. I thought that I should be comfortable with a lot of casual promiscuity because that's what women are supposed to feel comfortable with, you know, like in a kind of feminist way right, or a the, sex the girl's positive gone way. Wild generation yeah, yeah. Or something. And, a, yeah. and it took a, a long time to to sort out the what did make me feel comfortable. Right. And what is that? We're going to get to that deep, dark secret sooner <laughs> well, or later. I, 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 I had this thing a couple of years ago where 
I started, and it was because I was so busy and traveling so much that I didn't have a choice almost, or this, it kind of forced the issue, but I was doing what I called 50, 1950s style dating, where I would, so it was kind of as reverting back to high school, where like I would make out like and, and, and pet, but oh, I, I had pet. realized, I had discovered that bringing like bringing it to intercourse just did bring it to a whole other emotional level that I couldn't sustain because I had so much work and travel going on right and so but doing it by so in this kind intercourse of, or orgasm if I can ask oh um without getting too graphic and you, you, you draw the lines here but I mean I was thinking of in terms of intercourse but you're right I can think of only one orgasm happening during that time and it really unnerved me so you're like the traveling salesman's worst nightmare <laughs> my god there, yeah. there are men shaking in their boots all over the world because of you yeah <laughs> all right so you're an only child i take no it? i have a, a younger brother who's four years younger oh uh, is he a rule follower as well no he's a rule breaker a rule breaker but now he's one who's married with two children uh-huh so um, and I, he works for the FBI or something? No, he is a horticulturalist oh, and works in a greenhouse. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope your parents are proud of you both. Yeah. yeah. Well, you all did a good job raising right. one another. Yeah, that's good. Where were we? Your deepest, darkest sexual fantasy. <laughs> I think that's what we were talking about. I'm just going to keep knocking at that door until somebody opens it. So, okay. So the way you and I got to meet each other was you got in touch with me for this article that changed your life. Yeah. And essentially changed your life because of what I said. Yes. And the quote you got from me is what completely changed your life, right? Did I only quote you once in it? I think so. Okay. I don't know. I don't remember. It was toward the end. Yeah. I was disappointed after the jump or whatever they call it. <laughs> Um, no, but it was a great article, and, and it went like crazy. It yeah. sort of like everyone in the world read it, it seems. Yeah, viral. I it went viral. Yeah. So, yeah, so the way that that happened was I had been living part-time in Los Angeles, part-time here in New York, and doing freelance work and also working for a design magazine, and um, feeling pretty lost as a writer and frustrated. Mm. Um, Not as frustrated as those guys in the hotels. <laughs> Sorry, just put it in a word for those guys. Uh, it's good to hear you were frustrated. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> and, uh, and the Atlantic called, and I'd written for the Atlantic in the past, and I'd worked there after college, so I have a relationship with the magazine. And uh -huh. They called and said, we're wondering if you would write a cover story for us looking into what the you know men's worsening economic prospects could mean for the future of dating and family and marriage. And hmm. um, write it in the first person, draw on your own observations and experiences, but be taking in this economic social landscape. So I said, sure. I mean, it was the biggest assignment I'd ever been given by far. And, wow. um, you know, so they assigned it at 6,000 words, and right. which alone was the longest piece I ever would have done. Uh, and it ended up running at 13,000. Really? Yeah. Wow. All in one issue. Yeah. And so, so they loved what you sent them. Yeah. And, and did you send them twice as much no, as they asked for? No, I actually sent them 6,000 because I'm a rule abider. Oh, you're a rule abider. That's and right. You're still a rule abider. Yeah. yeah. So I filed at 6,000. But what had happened was, you know, so I took that assignment and, um, and I, the, the first hurdle was how do I figure out how to bring myself into the story of men's so-called worsening prospects because the reason I'm an unmarried person of 39 at that point has nothing to do with men's worsening economic prospects so you know so how do I talk about how do I 
yoke my own experience to this right to this this economic so have reality. you have you had a long-term relationship with a guy who was professionally significantly less prof- um, uh, successful than you I mean is that an issue for you no 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 I mean none of it I mean so at the time when I was starting out in the article it was just like okay here's what's happening culturally in America right now right. and and that snapshot is going to affect future generations of how they think about the family and so forth mm. but where I come from this these forces weren't affecting me when I was coming of age right. as an adult woman right so I can't talk about them in a personal right which way. is part of the assignment yeah, yeah so how so figuring out how to talk about it in a personal way is the thing I had to figure out how to do right and I didn't know and I started doing my research and looking into it but when I found the statistics around singles and that we have that fully half of the American population is single that was news to me and I realized that that's where the story was that that was where I could put myself into it and mm. create and put myself and in, into and then understand the larger context of why am I single at 39 being a rule abiding girl who thought assumed she would get married and have children at some point right Mm. like just I never I never questioned that Mm. and but then here I am at 39 not having done those things and having had plenty of opportunities to do that and and so it made me realize that I had chosen to be where I was but Mm. I hadn't consciously chosen it along the way right you've taken each individual step yeah without looking up and seeing the direction you were moving is yes like that? yeah right and so well so are you hard to please in terms of relationships <laughs> um, yeah i am so they generally end on on your no uh, i mean not not all of them um certainly but uh i do th- but i think that's this is part of this larger conversation that because so, so, so where it began, so when I started thinking about this, why am I here now in this place I didn't completely expect to be? Well, it's because I've been focusing on the work I've wanted to do, right. and I haven't found the right relationship yet, and mm-hmm. I haven't been willing to compromise anything because I've felt very fulfilled in my work and social life. And, right. and so, although I've been searching for love all along, I, I've just been like constitutionally incapable of compromising yeah and that's a big part of it yeah 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 <laughs> it's a tough yeah one. and so yeah. and part of my unwillingness had to do you know with my own uh, biography that mm. um that my mother had died young and the way that i i felt I, you know that really shaped my adults i was 23 at the time and yeah. the way that it I, I really felt like what the fuck like you 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 live you die yeah. right like we all die or whatever yeah. you're s- saying with your song and, yeah. and so um you know was family life all that fulfilling to her is she glad that she did that route you know she had a lot of unrealized ambitions as a writer and mm. um i know that she was very glad to have my brother and me but there were definitely complications in the marriage and yeah. and so it just you know made me I was questioning those things all along, even though I wasn't consciously... I was questioning them, but still seeking them, I guess. Uh, And so that was my way into the article. And so the article ended up... The more I started thinking about it, it started becoming more about what it means to be single and how women are choosing this more or choosing to get married later, of course. Um, we've, We've seen those shifts. And so then that started to feel exciting to me and that oh gosh I, I hadn't understood that we were in the midst of this 
real sea change as mm. far as social relations go and how exciting and promising that is because mm. obviously what we think of as the normal isn't working and and so what are what is the future of, of how we'll relate and how can our expectations change and so your book was very useful because you have been thinking in that direction already so you mm. taught me a lot that I needed to know yeah, the, the sort of backstory yeah you know, the, yeah as far as yeah. undermining our assumptions right. about how human beings are and um, and then the, the toward the end of, of the piece they decided to put me and my face on the cover and so I when they asked if I wanted to do that I thought well of course I'm gonna say yes like who, who's not going to do, do that but Whoa, that's really going to change this conversation and change the mm. the tenor and scope. And I I have no idea how that will turn do, out. Do you know how they came to that decision? Were they did they have models that they were looking I don't know, for? Actually, um, I, all I know is that the they, at, at that moment they didn't have an art director and they were outsourcing the art direction to a design firm called Pentagram. And Pentagram, and they Pentagram's done a lot of work for the Atlantic, but they're really great and mm. what they do, and and, and very, um, they're just edgier, as we say, than the Atlantic is on its own. And so they were Pentagram was trying to think about how to illustrate this article. I think more imaginatively than the Atlantic might have. All and right. They, uh, so first they decided, well, we need pictures of this this woman. This is a personal story. She's right. writing the first person, and right. and we want to see her face. And then I don't know what shifted and what made them think about the cover itself. Right. And, um, oh, so. someone saw the picture and said, damn, she's hot. She should go on the cover. Oh, actually, something like, I forgot. You're right. Something like, <laughs> a little like that happened. Yeah, like, like they that. had, I sent yeah. some photos in, and the, they were like, oh, oh, we can work with this. Yeah, somehow. yeah. So, um, Let's and, rethink this. And so it really did change. I mean, it, it was So people enormous. recognized, you, I mean, the, when it came out, did you have that weird thing where you're in the airport and you see it there on the stand? And, that was so weird, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was traveling a lot during that time, so I was at airports a lot, so it was really weird. And, and I had a little bit... I had a few instances of strangers recognizing me, but not much. You didn't but, like walk up to people and say, "Hey, see this magazine? Right. Look at me." No, <laughs> Lurk, you didn't do that. Lurking me stands. <laughs> I did that. Scowling. I you did, did that yeah, <laughs> in Barcelona because I did an interview for uh, the Vanguardia, which is one of the big, it's the biggest paper in Barcelona, one of the biggest ones in Spain, and they always have this thing on the back page. It's it's a you know bifold newspaper, uh -huh. right? And on the back page, they have uh, La Contra. It's like an interview with some scientist or author or whatever, and there's always a photo. And and um, so I went in and did the interview. One of the worst interviews I've ever done, by the way. Oh. The, the, the woman was just so dismissive. She just, like, set up her tape recorder and said, in Spanish, she said, so what's your book about? <laughs> and then she just like looked off into the distance and checked her watch and like gestured to friends through the glass, you know, yeah, I'll be out in 20 minutes or whatever. And I was just supposed to, you know, just blah, blah, uh. blah, blah, blah about my book. And then, okay, great. Thanks. See ya. Eh. Wonderful interview. But anyway, uh, the next day it came out, there's my picture on the cover, the back cover, and I'm like in cafes, like reading it, and, you know, like people are, you know, hey, do you see anything here? Do you notice anything? Did it work? Uh, a few people noticed. Yeah. yeah, I have a picture on my Facebook thing of like me, where, you know, the, the kind of embarrassing thing is I was wearing exactly the same shirt that I was wearing the day before, you know, I'm one of those guys. Change my underwear, though. I don't wear underwear. 
Actually, I, I haven't worn underwear since. I see, I'm lying because I know my family and my friends listen to this, and they all know I don't wear underwear. I haven't worn underwear since I was um, 11. Really? Because my kung fu teacher told me I should never wear underwear and I should always sleep in the nude. And and so why not? What and were the reasons for both? Uh, well, I was 11, so I didn't really ask. But my understanding was it had something to do about letting your body breathe, and you mm-hmm. know. But aren't but I feel like men's like boxer shorts are really breathable, but they they just feel uncomfortable to you now. Well, yeah, you get accustomed yeah. to you know sort of a freewheeling lifestyle. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So your deepest darkest fantasy does that involve guys who don't wear underwear by any chance? Uh, what do they call it? Going commando? I almost said going kamikaze. That that's not right. That's not right. Okay, so if people listening to this want to read your article, I imagine it's available online, right? Yes. And it's called All the Single Women? All the Single Ladies. All the Single Ladies. At what point does a woman become a lady? Um, it's, I don't think that there's a point. I think it's just a different way of describing uh, so what's what the difference between a woman and a lady? I think there are a couple of things. Like, you know, so maybe historically we have the idea of the lady as being someone who's prim and wearing gloves and a genteel. Rule follower. A rule follower. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> but now it's really used. Um, women refer to their, each other as lady all the time. So, oh. hey, lady, what's up? Do you want to grab a drink? Oh, hey, like ladies. the dreaded N-word among black people? Yeah, yeah. Is that what it is? Maybe, yeah. Because yeah. when I was in college, I... Um, there was this organization on campus. I, w- I went to this very sort of radical feminist hotbed. It? It's called Hobart and William Smith Colleges. It's it's a radical feminist hotbed there. Well, it sort of was. Okay. I mean, more among the faculty than the student body. Okay. Actually, by the time I was there, but I mean, in the '60s, you know, they blew up the ROTC building, and it, it was like this thing. And then, you know, like Kent State or whatever, and then. Um, so all the all these sort of radical '60s people wanted to teach there, and so the faculty was very much, uh, you know, like one of my best friends, the head of the English department, was a you know out gay Marxist literary critic. Wow. You know, it was like, and that was I 1982 see. or whenever, huh. with tenure. Um, but anyway, there was this organization called Women Against Ladies. Huh. <laughs> it was like a feminist, you know, take back the night kind of it was thing. Great. Yeah. <laughs> So it sort of ruined the, the words for me, though, because every time I refer to someone, it's like, if I call her a lady, I'm afraid she's like, I'm a woman, god damn it. I'm going to get attacked. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Women against ladies. Women against ladies. Yeah. So, I don't know. So, women. I mean, I think of lady to me is, is desexualized. Oh, yeah. 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 Lady is a like you said the gloves yeah. and the prim and the yeah and and I also f- age. I think of an older lady. Yeah. A woman to me is juicier and yeah. warmer and rounder and you uh-huh. know. Yeah, I don't. I shouldn't continue with this. <laughs> no, but you're right. But you're probably, right. A lady yeah. is contained. She's sort of streamlined and she's wearing foundation garments. Gar- uh, what are they called? Uh, girdles. Girdles. Oh, right. and girdles. Do women girdles. still wear girdles? Well, no, but they wear. Sp- Spanx now, which is just a modern girdle. That sounds kind of kinky. Right. Spanx. <laughs> yeah. My Spanx are too tight. Right. Okay. 
see, I always get lost. See, that's why this is called tangentially speaking. Huh? <laughs> Truth in advertising. You get lost in your undergarments <laughs> or lack, or lack thereof. thereof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let, let me check this thing if it's time for a commercial break. <laughs> oh, I can't even tell. 28 minutes. Yeah, we're going to take a commercial break uh, since it's just about half and halfway through and we, we're kind of lost in our undergarments here so let's see things i need to remind you listeners uh go to feralaudio.com where you can listen to other great podcasts even greater than this one like the duncan trussell family hour which is one of my personal favorites he's a comedian Mm -hmm. i've been on his podcast twice drinking beer at 11 o'clock in the morning in his dingy house in the middle of i don't even know where the hell it is somewhere in l.a and he has a way of like getting me to tell stories that I swore I'd never tell publicly, you know, other than like in a group of a small group of friends. But it isn't. Am I, am I allowed to break? Uh, interrupt your commercial? Sure, break? sure. It, just, it doesn't seem like it would be hard to get you to tell stories. I know it's hard to get me to stop telling stories. Actually, yeah, and I'm not even drunk at this point. It's amazing. Yeah, last time I was on there, I ended up telling the story about getting stung by a scorpion on top of this Mayan temple in Guatemala while I was tripping on acid during a full moon. True story. And and then he got it out of me and I was halfway through it and I thought, I should be really clever and stop and say, I'll finish the story on my own podcast and (laughs) pull all his listeners over to my own (laughs) podcast. But he he wouldn't let me get away with that. So anyway, go listen to the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. He's great. He's funny. He's got interesting people on there. And uh, what else? There is a donate button. If you've got a bunch of money, don't know what to do with it. You know, grandma just died. You've inherited a ton of money. You can always donate it to Tangentially Speak. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a tax write-off in there or something. I'm sure there is. I'll give Kate some. We'll, we'll all be happy. Uh, what else? Oh, you can, if you're going to order anything at Amazon.com, uh, help put independent bookstores out of business, uh, go through the, what's it called? The affiliate button on yeah. the Feral Audio. You go to our website, at Feral Audio, which you'll see the tangentially speaking thing. Do you know about this? No. You buy anything at Amazon. You're not necessarily my book or your book or whatever. You you just go through that button. Anything you buy, about five percent goes to me or you or, oh, or whoever's website they okay. go through. And the purchaser doesn't pay anything extra. Amazon just gives them a cut of their profit. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty good way to you know to contribute money without paying anything extra. Right. In other words, if you if you shop at Amazon. Uh, Anyway, thanks for listening. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. We had a slight mishap where we were talking here for five minutes or so, and uh, I realized that this damn machine wasn't recording. And it's the machine. It wasn't me. It's not that I pressed the wrong button. Yeah, it is, actually. Uh, Anyway, so we were talking about uh, grappling with becoming a public figure. And uh, you were saying you got book book offers. You you went home at Thanksgiving. All these opportunities, doors opening everywhere. I I know what you're talking about. I mean, I'm trying to, like, develop a TV show, develop a web page, a website for for, um, ethical non-monogamy people to you know community site and all this and here come the police cars um yeah it's it's like you 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 want to 
take advantage of things. You want to you want to use this opportunity because you don't know how long it's going to last. Right. But you also sort of have to keep your shit together. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. there are only so many hours in a day. Exactly. So you went home at Thanksgiving and just thought about it. Yeah. And mm. and sort of melted down in thought. And mm. and what I was trying to figure What's out. What's it like when you melt down? If I just to I cry a lot. I'm a you cry. Crier. You're a crier? I like cry myself out. Ah. And I call my trusted confidants and make them listen to me While as I'm cry? talking it through. Sometimes crying will be part of it. Uh. Um, but I did have a, a two-hour conversation with an ex-boyfriend during that period. And mm. I felt like, I, I felt so adrift. And he was my most recent relationship. And although it had ended really badly and he dumped me hard oh. and I had been very heartbroken. Did he get laid at least occasionally? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right, good. Um, I... He also was the person who had been most recently closest to me right. and, and closest with my frustrations around my own life and where I was living and what I was mm. doing. And so I called him up and I was like, listen, I don't want you to be the person that I need to talk to right now, but you're actually the only person who's equipped to have the conversation that I need to have. How does his and wife feel about that? He's he's single. Oh. <laughs> so he, he very... Um, and he, he likes giving advice. So um, ah, one he of those guys. happy. Exactly happy to have that role he doesn't understand that women don't want advice <laughs> right. he hasn't read no there's a lot to, he doesn't understand the, about women you know that book about the male female communication styles yeah. you just don't understand just, yeah yeah Deborah Tannen yeah. or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that yeah, yeah you just don't yeah. understand yeah. yeah yeah that's great so what I decided was so it was do I want to pursue my own TV talk show do I want to turn this article into a book and I didn't want to turn the article into a book, and in part because as a writer, what drives me is not journalistic inquiry and reporting. It was I loved doing that for the purposes of the article, but um, I couldn't imagine spending the next two years doing that mm. full time. And uh, meanwhile, I had when I had been writing the article, I had been thinking a lot about my own pantheon of personal heroines and who have really influenced the ways in which I think about marriage versus not marriage. And mm. I had started trying to write about them in 2004 and couldn't do it. I felt too close to the topic and too young mm. and too, it was too emotional for me at the time. Mm. Let me and guess. I'm going to guess that these these heroines were were not famous women oh. but were actually low-key women just sort of living their lives quietly humbly and nobly very is, insightful is, so you're ruining right? <laughs> <laughs> inside joke inside joke um, yeah i guessed before when the damn machine wasn't working and i went down in flames so i'm sorry i just had to do that so so they are um right now and they might i might end up cutting some out when as i'm writing the book but mm. The most famous ones are the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, mm. who was famously promiscuous and a free love advocate in, in Greenwich Village, Bohemia at the turn of the last century. Oh, really? And uh, the writer Edith Wharton. Mm -hmm. And and where she comes in... Okay, okay. Those are the famous ones. The un I won't tell you the names of the unfamous ones, because that's why you have to buy my book, is to discover who they are. Soon to be famous. But they were all uh, very interesting people with big personalities living and working in the early 1900s and and all american all american all new york city oh all new york city interesting and mm. they were um 
they were addressing these questions about what is uh, dependence versus independence, inter interdependence, commitment, how do you live a life on your own terms while also having love and commitment, um, uh, how do you be alone if you want to be alone, yeah. and, and they were doing this all, it was pre-identity politics, and that mm. was why it made it very interesting to me. It's a very naive kind of conversation, and mm. an unschooled one, and also a very... Um, you know, that was a, a very active, exciting feminist moment that was then shut down by the depression and the wars. Mm -hmm. And and so we didn't, we then, you know, reemerged again in the late 60s and 70s, but they were just continuing on with the work that was taking place yeah. in the early 1900s. Sure. And so that's that's what I'm writing about is my, so it's, it's memoiristic and biographical and historical. So it's my own coming of age as an adult woman hmm. wrestling with the questions of marriage versus not marriage right. through the lives of uh. these women who are all wrestling with it themselves. So uh. it's, um, it's kind of like they're the story and I'm the glue. Very interesting. And it's it's been so much fun. Do you have a title for it? I call, for now I call it "Among the Suitors: Single Women I Have Loved," and and that "Among the Suitors" is taken from the late Carolyn Heilbrunn, who was a an English professor at Columbia, hmm. wrote a book that came out in the early '80s called "Writing a Woman's Life." That hmm. is a slender, highly influential kind of book, and it's very 1980s feminist conversation is what where it comes out of but she has some I wish I had sat my office but there's some quote where it's like you know until we have more options more narrative options for women to think of their lives outside of marriage um, they are until we have that we are women are doomed to live living their lives out among the suitors wondering whither and whom to marry hmm. and I really liked how she captured what I had felt that I as a rule-abiding um, young woman at turn of the century 2000 you know um, I felt really frustrated by the fact that I was kept thinking of my life in terms of who was I going to marry it just seemed right. so boring right. but I I like relationships. I like men. I I felt afraid of ethical non-monogamy. I didn't, you know. So how do I think about or do these things? Right. Um, but I, I, I and I. So what I decided was after all of the response to the article and hearing from hundreds, if not thousands, of young women all over the world grappling with these questions, I realized, oh my God, you know, it's like this is this is real. These are real questions and. I'm old enough now. I'm the big sister, and these are all my little sisters. Yeah. I need some help, yeah. and I can I can draw on my last decade and right. let them know what it's like and how I've done it and how they can think about doing it. and And so having that clarity of audience enabled me to to really. So I just sat down and wrote the book proposal over Thanksgiving and sent it to my agent, and she said, "Great, let's go." Mm. So it um so that's what I've been working on. So we sold it. We sent it out in January mm. and got the deal, and I've been working on it since. Who's going to publish it? Crown Random House. Oh. Cool. Wow. I like what you said about suddenly realizing that you're the big sister. Yeah. Yeah, I've been feeling that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm 50. I just turned 50 this year. So I'm sure part of it's that, some sort of numeric thing. But, but it's also that... 
you know, two years ago, I was there two and a half years ago. I was this guy in Barcelona translating medical documents and, you know, nobody had ever heard of. And I was the guy sort of saying, hey, you know, sending off the email, you know, if you'd be willing to take a look at this and maybe consider giving it a blurb, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, I was beseeching, you know. Yeah. And suddenly I'm getting beseeched all the time. Yeah. You know, I'm the beseechy. And recently I blurbed a guy's book, a great book, actually, uh, Sex and Punishment. It's called oh. by Eric Berkowitz. And he wrote me this really nice email afterwards saying you know i really appreciate you doing this because you know once i could say you had approved of the book that opened up other people were willing to look at it and and he said you know I'll, i won't forget this and and i want you to know i'm gonna try to be as generous to young up-and-comers and it was like dude i am the young up-and-comer right. when, when did i become the elder statesman it's like you know that's too fast i'm not ready to be the elder statesman but, but do, you, do you feel like you could be an older brother because that's I'm very comfortable being the older sister so that's why well I am an older brother okay. I've been an older brother my whole life but but yeah yeah I mean I just mean that transformation yeah, you know I'm sure you're, you're the same way you probably get manuscripts you get people asking you yeah. for favors you know hey could you introduce me to your agent could you do this could you do that and like wow it happened so fast right you know there wasn't this gradual it seems like for you either I mean you were working as a journalist but that article really shifted things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there was no mental preparation, right? Like you couldn't have known. You wrote your book, your book. you don't know how it's going to be received. It could have sunk right. out of sight like most books do. Most do, yeah. If they're lucky doesn't. enough to even get published. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But what I meant by the older brother thing is that rather than framing it as elder statesman, maybe it could be more comfortable. Because that's what I yeah. found. Like, yeah, all of a sudden I'm in this completely different position. But yeah. I, because I like being an older sister and that comes so naturally to me, that's how I think of myself all the time. Right, you know? So right, when, right. Anyway. It's true. It, it, and it's it's lovely. It's really lovely to get emails from people saying that something you've written has affected their lives. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's it's every writer's dream. Yeah. You know, to... And I, I did a presentation a week ago in L.A. And after the presentation, a guy came up to me and with his friend. And um, they sort of hung around the circle, you know, while I was shaking hands and signing things and whatever. And then when the other people left, he came up, he said, I just want you to know I'm only alive because of your book. <sighs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, a year ago, my girlfriend cheated on me and it just blew my heart away it hurt so bad i started drinking and taking pills and uh, i wanted to die and his friend was like nodding his head mm. and his friend was a doctor and his friend was like yeah and someone gave him the book and he read the book and in the context of the book he found a way to forgive her wow. and it's like okay you know she, fine she cheated on me but that doesn't mean that i'm a piece of shit that she threw away it maybe she had her whole you yeah. know, she did things for reasons that really don't have much to do with me. Yeah. She's just a fallible ape like the rest of us, right. you know? Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, I, that, it, that reminds me of one of my favorite emails was from a man in his late 50s who wrote and said, I am a husband and father. I come, I forget where he's from, from some kind of like West Indian country or something. Mm. And, and he said, "Where I live in America, but... 
where I'm from, women marry young and have families. And here I have this American-born daughter who's 35 and she's got a master's in religion and she's beautiful and amazing and she's not anywhere near marriage and I've just been tearing my hair out about Mm. her so worried and it's caused such rifts between us because she's okay with her life Mm. but you know her mother and I are not and I read your article and I realized she's okay and you know now I don't worry about her and I can see her as an independent adult making these choices isn't that amazing yeah it was incredible you can write something that helps a father who you've never met understand his daughter yeah. who you've never met yeah. it's it's a pretty amazing thing yeah. Yeah. yeah okay so welcome welcome back to two writers talking about how great it is to be a writer <laughs> right. and what a pain in the ass minor fan can be yes yes <laughs> love to complain about these things and don't you just I mean, what do you do with all the money it's terrible having all the money I'm just kidding there's no money those of you who are thinking of writing for a living oh, be a God. plumber yeah. just do something you know yeah do something other than writing because even if you you know one in a million you still have trouble paying the bills um okay so what else so the tv thing you decided you decided just not to do that well that was a talk show but instead what happened is um the article got optioned by sony and to be a tv sitcom a sitcom yep and uh and it's now been picked up by cbs as uh so we're writing a script right now and uh over the winter we'll learn if cbs wants to bring it to pilot or not and then after that you know i think Someone described the odds to me as during pitch season, each network will hear 600 pitches. Of those 600, they will buy scripts for 200 of them. Of those 200 scripts, they'll turn 10 into pilots. And of those 10 pilots, two will go on air. So we just hit the script and this stage. is the process by which the complete garbage that we see on TV yes. is chosen. Yes. Very yes. interesting. Yeah. 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 So this will be a... The, the idea is that it's an ensemble comedy... Uh, called All the Single Ladies, but I think we have to change that name, but based around the character of Kate Bobbick, a 35-year-old successful woman who decides she doesn't want to have it all. Uh She thought she wanted it all. The husband, the kids, the granite countertops. But she doesn't. Mm. And so, because she had thought that meaning resided in having a family, but now she's questioning that, then where do you find meaning? So that's what she's doing. And she lives in a in an apartment building in Boston and there's a you know cast of eclectic other singles a 70 year old widow who Uh Uh, had been had the whole traditional life and are you gonna get Betty White on this show no we have I forget the woman's name (laughs) who we want Phyllis Somerville oh okay Phyllis Um, we have a 22 year old uh, trust fund girl who's obsessed with marriage and wants to marry a rich doctor you know she's got a trust fund why does she need a doctor leave a doctor for someone else come on sister yeah Uh, do you have like do you have any lesbian characters oh my god we don't oh (laughs) I'll be a consultant. Yeah. I, I'm the guy to bring in the lesbian characters. You got to no, have a lesbian character. No, but there's a reason. Character. I tried to. I tried to introduce it. You're. I asked this question. Mm. You're making me remember, and I forget what the answer was. Lesbians don't work on network TV. Right, right. No, no lesbians. Hot lesbians are fine for network we had, TV. We had a gay man. You should have a butch lesbian too. Yeah, yeah. And you have a gay man, and you should have like. Like the doorman should be like a horny Latino guy who's just coming onto the women all the time. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And he's like a he's like a male stripper at night or something like that's that. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. 
you could get um, what's his name? Who's that good-looking kind of dumb guy that played? You know, he was in that strip movie. Oh, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, get Matthew McConaughey on the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's actually dumb. That's that's the character he plays. Yeah, I don't know. It's too good looking not to be dumb. That's yeah, the way I look I, at I don't it. even really know who he is. You don't know who he is? No, Come on. No. Matthew McConaughey. I mean I know that name but I can't put a face to it. Oh yeah. Yeah. If I were if I were gay or a heterosexual woman that's who I, I wouldn't be talking so disparagingly about old Matthew McConaughey. Okay, so what else are we doing? So, so you're working on the TV thing. You're one of the writers, creator. I, I'm, what, what's I'm a your creative role consultant there? and uh, and co-producer. So wow. I was out in LA helping to pitch it and, and come up with this concept. This is nuts. You're living. You're living the dream. You wrote one right. fucking I article. I know. It was your biggest article. They put your face on the cover. Do you think this would have happened if your face hadn't been on the cover? Not to this extent. No. Because because to have my face on the cover made it news in a different way and then made everyone connect the story to me. I mean, it was obviously my story, but yeah. do you know what I mean? It's sure, like, there are a lot yeah. of first-person narrative yeah. stories in magazines all the yeah. time. Yeah, And also because they the way they package the story. So I look kind of tough on the cover. You know, I'm a little like hmm. almost scowling. It's like an ambiguous expression and right. my hairs and my eyes and then the, the title says what me marry and oh. you know so it's so uh, men were really angry when it first came out it, I was angry. getting death threats and like really violent crazy like you know you haven't you're you're just you know single bitch because you haven't met me yet. Why don't you just <laughs> like, let me fuck you I'm and I'll show you? I'm charming, you single bitch. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, yeah. Seriously? Yeah, you're yeah, yeah. Death oh, threats? Yes, because it was you'd... scary. Yes. How are, how were they coming? People emails everything. Email. Oh, because I naively had right before the article went up, I had a friend put up a little website like katebolick.com, and I thought just in case if anyone reads the article and maybe if they have an interesting insight they'd like to share. <laughs> uh-huh. I'd like my email address oh, to be available. That would be nice, yeah. And then, you know, yeah, there's the next thing I know. It's just like these violent, angry things. That lasted for a few weeks. It was weird. Wow. It made me feel, I mean, it was scared, but I felt awful thinking that I had made these men feel so bad about themselves well, that they wanted to no, do that. come on. They were feeling bad about themselves anyway. Well, no, yeah, but that it touched you. that nerve. You know, just to, well, mm. no, really. I was hearing, because a lot of men interpreted my... You know, I mean, there are a lot of things going on on in that article, but I, you know, I'm talking about how, you know, because it's the assignment, men's worsening prospects are changing the landscape, and so I had men with really bad prospects writing to economically, yeah, saying like, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm a great guy, blah blah, blah." and and so that that was really hard figuring out. Like, I know I'm not supposed to respond, but sometimes it would just tug at me in a way that I would say, listen, I'm sure you're a great guy. You know, this is. I'm saying these other things right. and, and let's just like focus on the real message here which is that it's time for the ways in which we think about these things to change and for this conversation to change and that's what we should all be right. taking part of right um, yeah I, I was just gesturing to Kate not to don't gesture on the table <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately we've got our minimalist setup here and sorry for this uh, so anyone who wants to send you a, a death threat how should they get in touch with you yeah um, uh, Kate Bullock at gmail.com okay great yeah <laughs> is there you have a special death threats like yeah. folder you say you probably should save them, I do I've you know? saved everything yeah, yeah. I want to write about it I think at some point yeah yeah I've a friend of mine, I, I actually don't read comments, you know, like I, I, have you ever done a big think interview? No. You mm-hmm. know, 
and they do them here in Manhattan. And they get a lot of traffic. I did, well, actually, I did it a year ago, and they just released one that they had cut called How Darwin Can Save Your Marriage. And I was just basically saying, like, look, a little flexibility in a relationship can actually, you know, be a stabilizing effect as Mm -hmm. opposed to Dan Savage's thing, you know, about monogamous relationships and all that. And it got like 40,000 views in a few days and and there were hundreds, a thousand comments or something. And a friend of mine said, oh, those comments are amazing. I'm not reading the comments. So he went through and just copied and pasted some of the better ones. Uh And they were like these insane, you know, like really crazy stuff about... Yeah, I, I know. It's, it's like just, you know, you just want, you know, you're going to like go down on your wife and the, another man's jizz will be all over your face. And it was just like, dude, calm down, calm down. I, what are people up to out there? Ugh. Yeah. Sorry for giving you that image. Did, did you know, I just learned my boyfriend was just telling me yesterday that jizz, jazz originated from the word jizz. That he probably read that in my book. Oh, really? Yeah, I that's didn't... in Sex at Dawn, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Jizz and jazz have the same root. Uh, what else? A funky comes from the word mufunke, West African word meaning positive sweat. Oh. Not the sweat you get from work, the sweat you get from having sex or huh. dancing or whatever. That's positive sweat. Huh. I love that there's a language that differentiates yeah. positive sweat from negative sweat. Yeah, there were some other other things in there. And actually, the source for that stuff on early rock and roll and language... Rock and roll meant to fuck. Uh, rock around the clock that. tonight meant okay. to have sex all night, okay. you know? Black people knew that, but then when it shifted, like in the 20s, 30s, 40s... But then when it shifted into white consciousness... You know, it's like that weird kind of samistat where, you know, the writer knows what he's saying and the readers know, but Uh the people in between don't know in, you know, Russian literature. It seems like maybe some of the DJs might have known, but certainly the radio executives had no idea. So it's, hey, it's this new rock and roll everyone's talking about. And the black people are going, they just said, you know, (laughs) Jelly Roll Morton, you Uh know, famous blues guitarist, one of the founders of jazz and and early blues. Do you know what Jelly Roll is? Mm -mm. It's an anatomical feature that your body contains and mine doesn't. So... You mean like it's a cervix or something? Pussy. Oh, a pussy. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, the rule-abiding Kate Bullock is blushing. I'm happy to report. (laughs) Are you Irish? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's easy to make an Irish girl blush, especially a rule-abiding one. Yeah. Uh, now I'm lost. I, I I was going somewhere there, but we got lost. And, um, oh, the the source of this information is actually a wonderful book of essays by Michael Ventura called Shadow Dancing in the USA. I think it's out of print now, but the the essay that contains all this stuff is a two. It's broken up into two parts. It was published online. But you can find it. It's called Hear That Long Snake Moan. Okay. And it's a fantastic um, story of the origins of blues and rock and roll coming in through Haiti and how it's all mixed into the voodoo tradition. Um, so it's like West, and very interesting, West African religious, spiritual, musical traditions mixed with Irish cultural influence because 80,000 Irish women and children were sold in the slave markets of the West Indies in the 1600s. Whoa. Yeah. Cromwell's brother, who was, you know, the caretaker of Ireland, 
everybody's dying. I don't know if it was a potato famine or what was going on, but um, the men were dying and they were working the men to death. And so they took the surplus women and children and said, well, we might as well sell them as slaves, get a little money out of it. They're all dying anyway. So they shipped them to the West Indies to mix them in. And, and the problem was that the American plantation owners didn't want white slaves. Huh. But you got all this influence. That's why the Jamaican accent sounds like the Gaelic Irish brogue. Oh, that's right. amazing. Yeah. And in the in the voodoo tradition, there's a maypole. And in no West African religious traditions is there a center huh. pole in the middle of wow. the, the ritual. Well, that, I mean, that's also making me think of one of my f- favorite discoveries of this week on and my book research is that so one of the characters is a woman named Maeve Brennan who was Irish and moved with her family to the States in the 20s, the mm. 1920s, and um, and ended up becoming a writer in New York. And she's, she's actually the first one who really articulated for me what it means to be alone. And, and really, um, I, I had a real glamorization of what it meant to be alone. And, and the way she spoke on the page mm. brought it to life for me. And that's what brought me to New York too is I found I thought this was the place to be alone and um, anyway one of the things I've been wrestling with in my book is that as a white woman in my own coming of age adulthood thing I was responding exclusively to, to white women which is in, in the black female single woman experience is so much different and I want to try to figure out how to bring that into my book in an organic way mm. and um, and what I just discovered this week was that Maeve Brennan later in life became obsessed with Billie Holiday. And I'm really excited about that because I think it, it's going to, it gives me more insight into Maeve to know that this was music she was obsessed with and listening over, to, you know, over and over and over again. But it also, you know, Billie Holiday herself is such an interesting figure and the ways in which she had to wrestle with different things. So I'm glad about that. I, uh I just interviewed Carsey Blanton, who's a singer-songwriter who wrote the theme song to this podcast a couple days ago, and she sang a couple of songs while we were talking, and I I said to her that one of the things I really like about the way she sings is that her singing voice is her speaking voice. Mm-hmm. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's not a put on. It's like what we were talking about earlier about becoming a public figure, and she's yeah. like she opened for Paul Simon. She's you know played to thousands of people. She's pretty big time, but she's her voice and and the lyrics and everything. It's out of her life. It's very personal and it's naked and and mm-hmm. it's it's really beautiful. And so we were talking about that, and she said, "Yeah, you know, you can really see a lot of performers. They come up with a persona, they have a voice that they, you know, it's like an outfit you put on before you go on stage." But she said, "Billie Holiday, if you listen to interviews that she gave, she speaks the way she sang. Oh, that's that's her voice. That's her cadence. That's her. That's you know, great. it's not a put on that she figured out how to do." So, uh, yeah, interesting insight into old Billie Holiday. Yeah, that's great to know things. I had a girlfriend for a while who was really into Billie Holiday. It's all she ever listened to. Hmm. And it was Athuthena, strange French-Spanish name. And so what did that say about her, that she was really into Billie Holiday? I don't know, because I didn't really know much about Billie Holiday. Mm. She was from the south of France, so I think there's some French. You know, she was from Montpellier in France. But I had this terrible experience because she was she was one of these 
Well, you, you know, you've dated, I'm sure you've experienced this too, where you're with someone and it's like, wow, what a wonderful person. But it's, this just isn't for me. Right. Right? Maybe it's timing. Maybe it's chemistry. Maybe it's just lack of interest. I mean, she like had this sailboat and she always wanted me to go sailing with her. I, my idea of hell is being out you know, on the water on a sunny day with nowhere to hide. Me too. I hate it. Oh, it's Irish. You know, it's like skin cancer. Yeah. Oh my God. We're also trapped at sea. Yeah. I mean, like where there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. There's no shade. It's hot. It's sticky. It's that. So, you know, I was just like constantly disappointing her because she would come up with these great plans like, let's go do this. And oh, I don't want to do that. And I'm not normally the wet blanket, you mm -hmm. know, but I, I was just constantly in that position with her. So one night she said, I'm going to make you a delicious French dinner. Now, I have to admit, French food is not really my favorite, mm. okay? But fine, she was going to make me this dinner. And so I show up at her place and it's all, you know, she's cleaned everything and there are candles everywhere and there's a bottle of wine that's been breathing and the, so the salad is made and she's in the kitchen and it smells so great and everything. It's all wonderful. And she's made escargot. Which, ah, really, escargot? I mean, are you doing this on purpose? So, escargot, okay, fine. And she made it in some sort of a tomato, garlic kind of sauce, right? So, there's this big pot of snails. And so, she scoops them out and puts them on my plate and some on hers and we chin chin and all that. And I'm just thinking, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to swallow these damn snails. I'm going to pretend this is not disgusting because I, it's the least I can do. So I take the first shell and I suck out the sauce. And the sauce is really good, but there's no snail in there, right? So like, ooh, lucked out with that one. And oh, and she says, how is it? I say, oh, it's delicious. Very good. Oh, no, no. And then I take the second one and same thing. And she's eating and we're... And she's looking at me because I'm an American and she's wondering, you know, what I'm going to do with these snails. And I take that one. And again, no snail. And I'm like, wow, this is really my lucky day. And she's getting this weird look on her face. And it turns out she had bought a bag of snail shells. <laughs> they sell the snail separately. And you're supposed to, like, put the snail back in the shell at some point, I don't even know how the hell it happens, but I guess in France, that's not the way it works. So she had made this big pot of empty snail shells. <laughs> Wait, on purpose? No, she, oh. she didn't know. <laughs> so she was like getting, her face was clouding up and I'm like, oh, delicious, delicious. <laughs> there are no snails. So she was horrified and I was thrilled. It was fantastic. And that was pretty much the end of my relationship with Athena. Yeah. Tangentially speaking, <laughs> Dr. Christopher Ryan. Uh, you mentioned your boyfriend earlier. I can't let you go without without hearing. Now, did your boyfriend, was he one of these guys giving you like, you bitch, he was you a just fan. haven't met me. That's your problem. He was a charming version. A charming version of that. Yeah. Of that. yeah. Um, yeah, he contacted me. I, I, I got tons of marriage proposals, date requests. It was, I was deluged. And, deluged. And it was mostly, you know, I, I just didn't pay attention to it but the people who contacted me over Facebook uh, you know they had the benefit of there was a photograph so I could see mm. and if we had friends in common even if I didn't know them they felt less like a stranger right and I could judge them based on their writing you know mm. how they wrote the message and so mm. uh, Seth the guy I'm seeing uh, the way he 
wrote, which is, I liked how straightforward it was. And he Seth, said, Seth MacFarlane, by the way, <laughs> you, you, Kate's featured in the next family guy. <laughs> and he said, he just said something like, you know, I of course read your article and found it to be smart in smart in an exciting way. And I liked how he phrased that because a lot of guys were like, I really liked your article or this or I don't know. There just was mm. something kind of clean. And, and I thought smart in an exciting way. I knew exactly what he meant. That's exciting when you think that someone's being smart in an exciting way. So uh, yeah. we went out on a date. Yeah. And uh, in New York? Yep. Uh, he lives in New York. Oh, cool. So, yeah. so you live in the same city? Yeah. How long ago was that? Eight months ago. Yeah. So, um, so you'll be giving birth any day now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have a baby in <laughs> little, me. Little baby Seth. <laughs> a little settling. <laughs> I like settling. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you hear that? If you want to come on to a hot, famous woman, do it through Facebook. I think that's the lesson, right? And use the phrase, what? Smart in an exciting way. Smart in an exciting way. Or I think exciting in a smart way could probably work too. As yeah. long as you mix. Yeah, you don't want to overdo the excitement. Right, but he purposefully, he thought, I've got limited space here. I want to convey that I'm flirting somehow, that this isn't just a professional thing, but I don't want to overdo it. So he just yeah. used the word exciting. I thought that was elegant. Also. Elegant, yeah. Yeah, titillating might not have worked. Right. Yeah, <laughs> or smart in a hot way. Smart in a, yeah, that's what much. I would have said, and that would have, you would have just been, delete, <laughs> delete, he's a perv. Fair enough, that's true. I mean, I find, as far as dating, you know, I, I was single for a long time, dating, um, the big secret that I learned in my older years mm -hmm. is that eliminating incompatible people in the least amount of time is the best thing you can do yes you go into it thinking like oh she's hot i want i'll like spend all night trying to convince her to like have dinner with me and you ignore the fact that really even if she did have dinner with you you'd be bored or she'd be bored or whatever like why are you spending all this time yeah. chasing someone you don't even want to catch it's like that cartoon where the you know, like, what does the dog do when he catches the bus? You know, right, it's like right, that. Like, yeah. before you start chasing the bus, think about what if you catch it, you know? Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. And for both ends. I mean, yeah, both sure. Exactly. That, exactly. Think, isn't that something that women talk about a lot? Like, you get chased in hot pursuit by a guy and then, yeah, he gets you and he doesn't know what to do with you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, guys, I, I just assume a lot of our listeners are guys. I don't know why. Huh. Do women listen to podcasts? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> I don't read books either. Jeez, this is a mess. What do you do with your time? I try to write the damn things, yeah. you know, and I record them. No, I mean, honestly, reading a book takes more sustained focus than I really have. Yeah. I, I, I dig through books. Mm -hmm. I, I find stuff in books that I need to use for my next book, you yeah. know? I mean, I sort of like digest books in some it's strange way. So what is your next book? Uh, the next book's called Civilized to Death. Okay. And it's, uh, oh, her eyes lit up. She yeah. liked that title. That's good. Um, it's um, it's essentially, uh, is it bad luck to talk about what your next book's about? I, I always do it. I, other yeah, writers no, don't. I um, it, it's essentially an examination of the many ways in which modern life is in direct 
contradiction to the life we've evolved to live. And that's why, did you see the Louis C.K. thing he did on Letterman where he said, everything's amazing and nobody's happy? No. Oh, it's, okay. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Because mm-hmm. they're talking about economic collapse and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And Louis C.K. says, well, maybe that's what we need. We need like to go through a period where we go back to basics and we're all walking around with a donkey with pans clanking on the side. <laughs> because these days, everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Yeah. And so he talks about being on a flight with Wi-Fi. And he says, like, you know, Wi-Fi on an airplane is like the newest, coolest thing, right? And he's on this flight, you know, to L.A. or something, and and the Wi-Fi cuts off, and the stewardess comes on and says, sorry, we're resetting the Wi-Fi, whatever. And the guy next to him says, God, this is bullshit. (laughs) You know? It's like, you're sitting in a chair in the sky checking your your email yeah. and you got to wait five minutes and you're pissed off yeah that's where we are yeah and so that was the germ of this book and it's like yeah why what's going on because it's true so my essential it's going to be an extended rant essentially but mm-hmm. but basically what i've come to believe is that the trajectory of civilization is leading us ever further away from the course upon which we can actually find happiness. Hmm, hmm. The things that really lead to happiness aren't the things that civilization is moving us toward. Ooh. So we're running on a wheel that's, you know, it's it's a, you know, all these gadgets, all this shit, you look at the happiness research, it's not about, you know, you spend money on experiences, it has a lasting value in your life. You spend it on stuff, it's gone within a couple right, of weeks. Right, I also found, and this is something to maybe keep in mind, uh, a few years ago, I went a, a friend of a friend who owned a farm in very northern Vermont. She's a puppeteer, and she was going to Puerto Rico on a puppeteering trip and needed somebody to take care of her animals mm. on her farm. And that was a, a two a, a donkey, goats, and some geese. <laughs> and so I thought, great, I need a change of seat. Oh, really? <laughs> and I'll go, I had all these visions of like a cozy nice. Vermont farmhouse yeah. in yeah. January. And, um, Bucolic. And so off I went. And it, it turned out, I was there for, I think, two weeks. And it, it turned out to be this very old, tumble down, very dirty farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. It was so isolated and so freezing cold mm. and snowing, tons of snow every day. Mm. And every day, twice a day, I'd have to suit up, get you know these like snow gear on and go out in the dark and feed the animals. It was scary. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would just sit in this dirty, freezing farmhouse oh, yeah. all day with no internet connection. Oh. And it was, it was heated by a wood-burning stove in the basement. So I'd have to go down like every three hours and throw logs into the stove, into the furnace. And it was terrifying. Mm. If sparks came out, it would burn the house down. Mm. And my point is, and I had to drive 30 minutes to get Wi-Fi at the library. Oh, boy. And I was really happy. And oh, you were? happier than I had been in a while. Yeah. And I would call friends in New York and... I couldn't believe the stress in their voice that yeah. I was listening to. You could hear and, it then. And so, yeah. and what I realized was that because I had to spend all day keeping warm, figuring out what to eat, yeah, uh, I didn't have time dealing to be neurotic. With yeah, dear, geese dear, are geese. not easy to deal with. <laughs> so there, there, just, there wasn't time to be unhappy, and mm. there was some kind of happiness to be found. I, I wasn't euphoric. It's not right. like I was great, but I right. was surprised. I had expected to feel really lonely. Yeah. 
I, I did feel very scared a lot of the time, mm. but I didn't feel lonely at all. And I didn't feel beset with the same neuroses that eat me alive when I'm in New York City, mm. where I have heating and plumbing and yeah. uh, food delivered to me by fresh direct and constant sister. Wi-Fi. Yeah, so. I, my first apartment in Barcelona, around the time I knew Athuthena, was this uh, walk-up, like six-floor walk-up on the roof of a building. No, no uh, kitchen, no shower. It just had a little sink, toilet, and like a room, a small room. And um, I had no money. All my everything I had, I'd found in the street, including the mattress, which was kind of embarrassing. But it was great. I found the mattress one day, like midday. I found this mattress like four blocks from my apartment. It was there, and it didn't have any like obvious blood stains or anything really, really grungy. And I'd been sleeping on this camping pad, and I just met a woman. It's like I should have had a mattress, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't have money. So I grabbed this mattress, and I put it on my head, and I thought, all right, I'll just withstand the embarrassment of walking four blocks to my apartment with this mattress through the center of Barcelona. But the mattress sort of flopped down just enough <laughs> that it covered my face. It was perfect. So I walked down the street and I could see everyone's feet. So I knew like when to stop and when to turn and not mm-hmm. hit people. But nobody could see who was under the mattress. It was perfect. It was like God himself had said, I will protect you from embarrassment. Poor young English teaching guy. Yeah. But in that apartment. <laughs> tangents. <laughs> tangents. In that apartment. uh I remember in the winter, because in the summer I set up a solar shower. I rigged this thing where I I, I got a like a big plastic um, jar sort of that I guess had, they did, had cooking oil or something in some restaurant. I found it. Mm-hmm. So I cleaned that out. I painted it black and I rigged up this system of tubes like uh-huh. the internet uh, running from the, the faucet so I could fill it by turning on the water in the, in the bathroom and the tube went out the window and it filled this thing up on the roof. And so by noon, it had had four hours of sun, sunlight on this black painted thing and it absorbed heat so I could go out with another hose and take a shower outside on the Ingenious. roof. It was fantastic. I've got a picture of my ex-girlfriend. I'll show you later. And so I thought that it, was a, it was like the best shower ever because it was like the water would bounce off you. You're in the sunlight, right? In the middle of the city, but nobody could see you because there was this chimney and this other wall. So you're in the sunlight and the water like bounces off and it's like diamonds, you know, <laughs> glittering in the sunshine. And you know that you've rigged this thing yourself and no energy, you know, no, no electricity yeah. or gas or anything. It's all green and it's all wonderful. And then in the winter, the winter was a little more complicated because I had this camping gas thing, like this little butane tank with two burners. So what I would do then is put on this big spaghetti pot I had fill you know fill that with water and you know it took like an hour to get that water boiling mm-hmm. so then I had a bucket that would be like full of cold water and I already had the ratios worked out and I'd pour the hot water into the bucket so I had a bucket of warm water uh-huh. and I'd like squat over the drain in the bathroom and like I had it all worked out so like you do your you know your armpits and your whatever and then you don't get the soap in your water though because uh-huh. you've got a separate thing for the soap you know sort of and then after this whole complicated procedure you'd still have about half the water left in the bucket and that's when you would just tip it over your head and it would run down your body and your whole body would get this warmth and i mean delicious delicious exactly delicious i remember that still i I get like chills remembering that experience now i get up in the morning walk in perfectly warm water i don't even notice it Mm. I just think about whatever I'm pissed off about or whatever my problem is. You don't. That's the point. We 
we get further and further away from these experiences that are very elemental and basic. Yeah. But those are the things that make us happy. Yeah. Not these abstract, yeah. you know, satisfactions that are so ephemeral. No, and that's even, I feel like I, I read that tip in women's magazines a lot, like wash your own dishes hmm. because the, the sensation of the hot water on your hands hmm. and cleaning it's actually very soothing and we've right and seeing something that you've done you've finished yeah because as a writer you know you never finish yes. it's you're moving but you don't really know where you are and where yeah. you were yeah i just i just bought these chalkboard decals for my office so that i could plot out the chapters and look at them and that's been mm. such a huge difference in oh, my really? relationship to the book because it had just been feeling like soup in my brain right and yeah because i'm working on a computer it's all these invisible files right and yeah right but it's, it was to be able to write and have it there yeah well listen thank you for doing this thank you this is lovely yeah i hope you're not still following all the rules you've got it for a rule follower you've got a real glint in your eye i must say yeah i'm a mischievous mischievous rule follower, rule follower. <laughs> That's kind. All right, I'm going to go dump a bucket of water over my head. I think that's the lesson for today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time at uh, Tangentially Speaking. You said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.